This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. When both the Washington Post and Fox News cover a story, you know it is big news. The headline from the Washington Post, hundreds of Maryland parents protest lessons they say offend their faiths. A crowd of mostly Muslim and Ethiopian Orthodox parents want the state's largest school system to exempt their kids from LGBTQ content. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Why is this a major news story that Muslim parents are starting to raise parental rights issues about public school materials? Well, let me answer that in two ways. In the present tense, it's important because some in the media are treating this as an initial sign of Muslims becoming part of a coalition of the religious right or worse. And we'll come back to that. I would think if you look at it from not in the present tense, but you back up, something linked to that is that I think for quite some time now, other members of religious conservative legal organizations have begun catching on to the fact that Muslim religious liberty claims are very important when they are presented in courtroom contexts. For example, in recent years, you've seen the Alliance for Defense of Freedom and Beckett and other groups specifically taking on cases involving, let's say, the rights of a Muslim prisoner to have a beard in prison and other symbolic things. Food and diet issues have always been important for Muslims and in distant history, Orthodox Jews and prison. So you've had some interesting separation of mosque and state cases, and you're beginning to see the conservative church-state think tanks take that on. But let me back up to before that and back up a decade and a half in my own life, and I can give you two stories from the years I spent in Washington, D.C., that I think for our listeners would illustrate what's going on here. The first one, where I got the idea, I was at a meeting and there were a number of speakers. It was an off the record meeting, so I won't even mention the organizations, but it was a meeting at which church state issues were being discussed by lawyers and others active in some of the logical church state groups in Washington, DC. And People were saying, well, in public schools in particular, when you have conflicts about parental rights and Christian tradition and religious tradition and faith tradition, and you have public school leaders who maybe have a very negative attitude toward what they view as fundamentalist Christians in their communities, etc., what advice would you give to public school leaders? when handling these kinds of cases. And the, and the answer that one of the lawyers gave, and this was a room that contained 
Orthodox Jewish lawyers, Catholic lawyers, Latter-day Saint lawyers, Christians of all kinds of different stripes, a variety of groups were at present. And one lawyer finally said, here's the advice I would give public school teachers. When those evangelical Christian parents walk into your office and sit across from you in your desk, look at them and do everything in your mind to pretend that they're Muslims and treat them with the respect that you would show to Muslim parents who are in a culture different than their own and are seeking ways to live out their faith. Don't look at them and say, here's the local Baptist, here's the Assemblies of God, here's you know who. Look at them and pretend they're Muslims. Now that lawyer assumed that thinking through that lens, public school leaders would immediately try to say, okay, what can I do with these parents in terms of options for their children? What can I do if I wanted to show respect for their religious traditions and the teachings of their faith? What could I work out for them? And his insight was that it was much more likely that they would deal in a fair-minded, neutral manner with Muslim parents whose faith they respect than they would with evangelical or charismatic Protestant parents whose faith they probably either fear because of the large percentage of them in the school or in their community or might even openly disdain in some cases. Okay, so that's story number one. Story number two grew directly out of that. A couple of years after that meeting, I was a part of a committee, and I, everybody knows this was an organization I worked for. I was a part of a committee at the Council for Christian Colleges University. We were requested by the leader of the organization. They were interviewing potential lobbyists slash legal counsel for this trade group, this interest group on behalf of Christian higher education. And I was invited, I think because the uh, person knew me well and knew my journalism background, and we'd worked together for a long time. This member of the, uh, the leader of the, one of the teams call, asked me to take part in the interview process. And so when the people, each person would come in and sit down, we each got to ask one question. And my question was, okay, so you've been granted a meeting with President Barack Obama and members of his team to discuss religious liberty cases involving Christian higher education. Name for me the Catholic, Latter-day Saint, Orthodox Jewish, and Muslim lawyer you would take into the meeting with you to make your case. All of them evangelicals. These evangelical lawyers all looked at me like, what the heck are you talking about? And only one of them immediately said, well, oh, I can name a Catholic or I can name an Orthodox Jew. And a few, you know, they came with one or two. But then several of them says, a Muslim lawyer. And I went, yes. Eventually, we're going to end up with situations in public schools and in situations involving higher education where the rights of Muslim educators are going to end up being very similar on moral and social and cultural issues to those of traditional forms of Christianity, Judaism, and other conservative moral 
religious traditions. So at that point in my mind, I kind of began thinking, okay, when is this going to happen and how will the press respond? Not just the public school officials, but how is the press going to respond to this? Well, a little over a month ago, the man we call the patriarch of Get Religion, the retired religion writing giant Richard Osling, wrote a memo because he spotted a very interesting document, a document I hope to write about soon, if I can land the right interview. And he noted that in May, a statement came out from a very wide coalition of mainstream Muslim intellectuals, clerics, scholars, etc. And the name of this statement from May 23 was Navigating Differences. We put a post up where he gave contacts for some of the leaders in the group and quoting, and here was their point. It was a formal statement of why Muslim leaders and Muslim parents needed to begin to defend their own doctrines and faith in what they were viewed as an increasingly hostile American legal environment. And this wasn't hostility to them as Muslims. It was hostility to them as believers in certain Muslim doctrines that specifically related to the sexual revolution and other things having to do with marriage, family, parenting, etc. So once again, when I read that, when I was editing that for Richard Osling before we put it up on the site, I also thought, okay, are we going to see any coverage of this very important statement? And why aren't we going to see very important coverage? Well, just a couple of weeks later, the situation exploded in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And now we're getting to see what this looks like when it ends up in print in elite media. What did you make of the Washington Post coverage? Well, I found it interesting that quite a few people on Twitter immediately said, notice how the respect that this Washington Post article showed to these protesters. And one or two people even kind of contrasted it with some of the coverage in the past when you had what were described as Trump supporters and evangelical parents and whatever trying to address school board meetings about some of these. And I wondered if someone was going to raise the issue. Remember when we had that talk about whether the FBI had recommended that parents speaking, that networks of parents speaking in these sorts of settings might even be investigated, you know, as possible sources of violence, either verbal violence, emotional violence, or physical violence. There's been controversy about this for quite some time. So I thought it was interesting that a lot of readers thought that this story showed respect. And I can give you the reason why they they thought that was the story dedicated some space to just quoting the people who spoke in the meeting from a Muslim point of view. The fact that you got to hear their voices struck some readers 
as being unusual. And they saw that as a sign of respect. But then I immediately whipped out a notepad and began, as I read the story, and began writing down some of the problems that we see in this. And I think you and I have even discussed this in previous broadcasts. The phrase, for example, that they, the headline, parents protest lessons they say offend their faiths. Well, so the, the lessons don't offend their faith. They say it offends their faith. So we're not even sure what Muslims believe. And nowhere in the story does it actually tell us what traditional forms of Islam believe about gender and sexuality, etc. I mean, it would have only taken a couple of sentences. And Dick Osling even noted that this document does a great job in just a few lines of noting what some of the quotes from the Quran and things are and, and how they have traditionally been interpreted by traditional forms of Islam. This isn't hard stuff to find, and this entire document had come out. Navigating differences, clarifying sexual and gender ethics in Islam is the name of this document. Uh, if people want to look that up, when I write about this at Get Religion, I'll have the, the PDF statement. And of course, it's already there in the Dick Osling. Here's another quote from the Washington Post story that hits me. And I know you'll remember that we've talked about this. Books and lessons that contain LGBTQ plus characters. The books just contain the characters. Once again, we have another story about these controversies that doesn't name the books. And in particular, doesn't name what's in the books, some of which are illustrations and plot lines and pictures that couldn't be shown at these meetings because they're considered to be by some pornography, by others at least explicit and offending. Why not have one paragraph that mentions the names of the books that are actually being discussed here and how they're being used in curriculum? And that comes to the latter point in that it just says largest district. It talks a little bit about ages and where these things fit. It notes in this case, we're talking about literature, not sex education, but um, it's clear that it, it's elementary school. There isn't a clear description of what materials are being used in what grade and what those materials contain. Instead, we get one of those phrases that was probably dictated by the leaders of the school district, books and lessons that contain LGBTQ plus characters. Well, they just contain them. There's nothing specific there that's offending anybody. And I'd love to know, I've been looking at some other coverage, did the parents actually attempt to discuss some of the context and the content? And was that prevented? There have been many school meetings in which people have tried to hold up posters containing images of pages from the books and have been forbidden to do so because it was considered obscene. And yet these are the books in libraries. And once again, I stress this is not a book banning situation, whether books can be in public libraries or even in 
public college libraries, public high school libraries, or whatever. These are issues in elementary school materials and whatever. And the question is, can they be used in required classroom work? And if parents argue that those contradict everything they believe as Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Latter-day Saint, etc., believers, are the parents allowed to have their children pulled out of those activities without them being punished either with disciplinary matters or at the very least academic matters because they don't get grades for the assignment. One other point, and this is something that is in the Fox report, and I, and I look to see, looking at the timing just to make sure, and I believe this is the exact same meeting because you have some overlap between the testimonies. I don't know if this, I'll, I'll just read the section from the Fox report because it's possible that this was in the school meeting and these other people weren't present. There might be some reason that this is not in the Washington Post report, but it makes it into the Fox report. So I presume this was in a public place on the record. Now listen to this. Following the children speaking out at the June 6th meeting, a Montgomery County member, Tristan Mink, accused them of being on the side of white supremacists. This issue has unfortunately put some Muslim families on the same side of an issue as white supremacists and outright bigots, the Democrat representing county district for District 5 said. I would not put you in the same category as those folks, although you know it's complicated because they're falling on the same side of this particular issue. Now, it says that's a June 6 meeting. The story is running at the same time as the Washington Post, like on June 28. This obviously, it's a different meeting than the live coverage, but it sounds like it was something that happened in a school meeting on the record. So it's a good question to say, if this is how heated the debate has gotten and Muslims are now being compared to white supremacists by an actual member of the board, that strikes me as a relevant quote. I don't know whether the Post needed to flash back to it, but it certainly would be something worth paraphrasing and included just for context. Terry, what else did you find in that Fox coverage of this subject that piqued your interest? Well, I mean, you had a reference to the Attorney General Merrick Garland memo about parents speaking out of board meetings being investigated by the FBI. I mentioned that early. You did have a reference to that. And you had some other quotes. But the most important thing that was in that particular story was just more quoted material, similar to what came from the Washington Post. But then, most importantly, the quote from the member of the Montgomery County Council comparing the Muslim parents and participants to white supremacists. That was far and away the most important thing because when Fox ran that, several people heard that quote or read that quote for the first time, and you began to get people reacting to it. So at this point, it's definite that that quote is now in fair play to be discussed. That is, if journalists think that's relevant, I would assume that roughly half of America would think that quote is extremely relevant.
this obviously kind of breaks with the narrative that the media has been attempting to perpetuate when it comes to parents objecting to public school materials for Mm -hmm. small children. It's supposed to be only white evangelicals. And then it's almost as though the Muslims or maybe some uh, ethnic Christians show up and it's much harder to report that way. Well, yeah, the presence of the Ethiopian Orthodox in that meeting, and there is a large Ethiopian Orthodox community in the greater Washington area, including the the Maryland suburbs. I know that from having lived in the area. I mean, I I used to think about every third cab that I called in Washington, D.C. was being driven by Ethiopian Orthodox man with, with icons on his dashboard. And I would end up in conversations with him about that. So they definitely, you saw a level of respect because these were not the usual suspects to use the line from Casablanca. I've seen Muslims and others, obviously African-American Christians, Latino Christians, the changing status of the Latino vote has been a huge issue in American politics for the last eight to 10 years. And you could see it coming in the first Trump election and then in the second. It didn't take a, you know, ESP to be able to figure out that this issue was coming. The question now, of course, is what happens now? Where does it go from here? Will the press pursue this story and follow up on what I see as some perfectly logical follow-up topics? What comes next? What are the stories? Well, there's a hint in Richard Osling's memo, which came out more than a month ago, in which he he did some homework that any reporter could have done with a few clicks of a mouse. And he looked to see if there had been any Muslim legal thinkers, religious liberty thinkers, who filed dissenting materials or filed friends of the court briefs all the way back with Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. And he didn't find any. So I think you can argue that something has happened legally in the last decade or so that needs to be covered. So there's story number one. Have any Muslim legal think tanks actually filed briefs in some of the most recent U.S. Supreme Court cases related to clashes between the First Amendment Religious Liberty Clause and the sexual revolution in general. I also think they should, frankly, go to some of these obvious think tanks like Alliance and Beckett and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council for the Southern Baptist Convention, whatever. I think a good reporter should call them and say, kind of a variation on the question I asked at the CCCU. Who are the Orthodox Jewish and Muslim lawyers that you're now consulting with? Because I think from here on out, no one should do anything in religious liberty cases involving parental rights without consulting with top flight lawyers in these other religious traditions. So who should they be going to? Scribble down here another one. Are we beginning to see the formation of Muslim 
homeschool networks and associations in response to growing tensions with public schooling on issues of a variety of kinds. Do we have Muslim homeschoolers? How many? And are those Muslim homeschoolers now becoming a part of the legal defense funds for defending the rights of homeschoolers? I think that's a perfectly logical follow-up. And close to that is, are we beginning to see the creation of Muslim private schools? And do they have the same kind of issues with lifestyle covenants, covenants for their faculty to be signed? I was at a meeting a month or two ago, and I was talking to a representative of the Sikh faith, and this leader in that tradition was saying, oh no, we're beginning to follow these cases because we know this is coming for our parents. We know this is coming for our community. Sooner or later, we're going to end up in situations where we need to defend our rights. The Sikhs are used to defending their rights with apparel, the right for Sikh men to be able to carry the special ceremonial dagger that's a part of their normal attire in life. They've had their own cases involving separation of church and state, religious liberty, etc. But the Sikh community was a, talking to him. It's another example of a community that's beginning to realize, well, if Alliance and Beckett and the Southern Baptist and the Roman Catholic conservative, if they're beginning to fight for us in courts, at some point, do we need to consider getting active, defending our own parents on these kinds of issues? So those would be good ones. I mean, you could talk to Muslim Democrats and see how they word their choices on this. And of course, there is kind of a Muslim left that corresponds to the Christian left and the more progressive theological forms of Judaism, etc. So there is a valid Muslim liberal theological tradition over there. Valid meaning it exists. The degree to which that's considered mainstream Muslim thought, that's another issue. And that's why I would say the first thing reporters should consider doing is writing about this navigating differences document, this public document with a long list of signatories from Harvard and a bunch all over the place of Muslims speaking out together on what can we see going on now in our culture that we need to respond to, period. So with uh, just a minute or two here, it is a big story. I agree with you. It's not going away. Do you think it will have better coverage in the future other than it's, you know, Washington Post kind of doing a neutral job and stating the facts? Great question. I mean, to some degree, you can say that it's a religion story, which means religion beat reporters may think that they should cover it. The issue is whether their editors will want it covered. It is a story that has some political implications. But at the same time, if you lean toward favoring the Democratic Party, if that's the bread and butter of the subscribers of your publication, if that's the doctrine of your newsroom, is to defend the Democratic Party, do you want to cover this story? It's kind of like the Latino voting story. It's a ticklish situation. Are there other Democrats who've used the white supremacist analogy 
what would they say about the rights of Muslim parents in this case? So I'm answering your question by saying it fits with some other stories that we have seen the mainstream media avoid. So if something were to show up about this at National Public Radio, on CNN, etc., that would be a breakthrough and that would tell us that this story is something that all reporters are going to have to recognize, not just reporters at conservative, unquote, newsrooms that have a, an ideological reason to bring it up. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.